Hello and welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Gavia Baker-Whitelaw and here's my co-host Morgan Davies. Hello. This week we're discussing Marielle Heller's new film, Can You Ever Forgive Me? Starring Melissa McCarthy as Lee Israel, a down-on-her-luck biographer in 90s New York who turns to forgery to make ends meet. Co-starring Richard E. Grant as Jack Hawk, her ne'er-do-well best friend. Based on Israel's memoir, this film has been nominated for three Academy Awards and is currently available in theatres and streaming in the US. And we both loved it. It's incredible. Yeah, it's really great. I saw this a few months ago. I sadly didn't have a chance to rewatch it for this, so I may be a little fuzzy on a couple details, but it was one of my favorite movies of the year. It just barely missed out on my top 10 list, so I do remember it quite well. I particularly enjoyed it because there's a lot of rare book stuff and I work in a rare bookstore, so I will speak to that later. It's just a really, really good and sort of idiosyncratic movie, I think, while also not being particularly formally inventive in a way that I thought was really enjoyable. Um, Marielle Heller's debut film, Diary of a Teenage Girl, which came out a few years ago, um, starring Belle Powley and Alexander Skarsgård, I liked but did not love and I thought this was a big step forward for her. I just thought it was great. So the basic setup is that the Israel, who was a real person, um, she wrote this book after serving time in prison, I believe, because she had forged all of these letters for famous people, um, had had a biography or two that was quite successful, and then that had fallen off, and she was working on another book. It wasn't going anywhere. And she had kind of run out of money and was very frustrated by her lack of success. And she came across uh, a letter that was by, was it the first letter or Dorothy Parker letter? It was, I well, in, in the movie, um, she's what she's researching is she wants to write a biographer of this historical figure called Fanny Bryce. Yes. And kind of basically people were not even reading her biographies of quite famous people her agent is like, no one's going to fucking read this. And she's researching this and finds a letter in one of the books she's researching from Fanny Bryce and sort of brings it into a rare bookstore and realizes this is something she can sell. And it kind of organically, through the fact that she doesn't have any money, she's like, well, push has come to shove. So she starts figuring out how to forge letters from famous literary figures like Noel Coward and Dorothy Parker and so on. And because she has like, She's she's a good writer and like she has such familiarity with these people. She is very good at kind of inhabiting their voice. So she basically just like writes things that seem like they're written by them. She like figures out what kind of notepaper and typewriters to use and forges their signatures and starts making a bunch of money. And it's not like she's sort of a high flying. This isn't like a movie about like a glamorous con artist or someone who's making a fuck ton of money. Like she's literally getting to pay her rent and like get medication for her cat. And the reason why she's not really successful in her professional life generally is because she's just quite a closed off and unfriendly person who has no interest in social niceties and in the publishing industry you have to be you know you have to be able to schmooze and there's a great scene towards the beginning of the movie where she is invited to this publishing industry party hosted by her agent and everyone there is like you know they're all a bit smarmy and they're sort of middle-aged and successful and she shows up and she's like very frumpy uh, which I really appreciated about this role. And she just like doesn't get on with anyone. She drinks really heavily and she ends up just like stealing a, cup of to- a couple of toilet roll tubes from the bathroom and then going home. <laughs> she also steals a coat. Yeah, in she that steals scene. someone's coat. <laughs> yeah. She is sort of unabashedly an unpleasant person 
which I really enjoyed because that is not usually how women are portrayed yeah. in films. If they're supposed to be sympathetic to the audience, yeah. obviously you have lots of nasty bitch characters in all kinds of movies, but but she, the thing is, she's not she's not cruel and she's not bitchy, but she's like very she's very curmudgeonly. Yes. And I listened to an interview with Marielle Heller where she compared Melissa McCarthy's performance to Jack Nicholson, which I find very interesting. Yes. She's just not very pleasant to be around because no. she's not nice. And so no one else at this point in her life, you know, she's middle-aged, she has just alienated everyone around her because she's so self-absorbed with her own problems and not in a funny way, which sometimes people are and that can sort of keep people around you. But she's obsessed with her own problems and her own self-pity in a way that's not fun. And so everyone has just kind of been like, I can't deal with this anymore. And by the time you meet her in the movie, she's just completely alone, essentially. She has her cat, whom she loves very much. And her career's going really badly. And so she winds up sort of engaging in this scheme. Like the first letter she finds is typewritten. She adds a fun postscript. A fun postscript amendment to it. And that jacks the value up. And then she's like, oh, I see. I can make something out of this. And she does wind up with all these different typewriters in her apartment for the different people, which is a great sequence when they show all of that happening. And she's not ever going for, you know, letters that are going to sell for many thousands of dollars. She's kind of on the lower end. But I believe The Real Israel did wind up selling... It was something like 400 letters by the time she got caught. Like, she was very, very prolific. Well, there was, in the kind of, oh, here's what happened afterwards, like, postscript at the end of the movie, basically they were like, yeah, there's probably some of these are still in circulation. And, like, really recently a couple of them accidentally got published in an authorised, like, Noel Coward biography and that sort of thing. (laughs) Yes, they had. And it was after she had... Oh, long after she'd been convicted and come out and told everyone that she'd, like, forged a bunch of letters. (laughs) Right. And that, I think it was two of them wound up being cited in this biography, and then they had to reissue the biography because whoever it was found this out. She's dead now, and so I don't think it was that she told them. It was somehow it just was revealed. So, certainly... Her words are still floating around there somewhere, which is kind of entertaining and horrible to think about. I have a colleague at my shop, who I obviously shall not name, who is just like completely incensed by this event. Like someone gave him a copy of her book as like a present many years ago. And he told us, he was like, I just couldn't even believe this person gave me a gift of this book. (laughs) I was so insulted. I couldn't, I just... I, I hate this woman so much, like on and on and on and on, because in the rare book world, forging is seen as obvi- I mean, obviously like an incredibly horrible thing to do. You shouldn't forge letters from famous people because they will wind up in biographies, which they shouldn't. But it was kind of funny to me. This is before I'd seen the movie. Funny to me to watch his like intense reaction to this because <laughs> I I just don't have that reaction. But the movie does a really good job of not really saying, like, this is a deep crime against humanity, obviously, but also being like, eh, maybe this isn't what you should be doing to, like, make a living. Like, perhaps this is not the best thing for well, the you. Thi- the thing or, that's, like, like really hurtful is, like, not like, oh, she's 
defrauded some people because there's never you it never bothers to give you a sense that there's like serious financial hardship is happening to these rare book collectors because they're working with such huge amounts of money and some of them clearly don't care if the letters are fake anyway as long as they're making a profit whereas she is literally like having to pay her rent but the thing that really kind of kicks home the moral kind of downside of this operation (laughs) is um she has this kind of semi-flirtation with this woman who works in one of the shops and she is basically betraying this woman because that like this 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 person is like her initial sort of way in to the scene and she has just been selling this person like fake letters for ages and also this woman like really just thought she was so impressive because like she was a published author and clearly really looked up to Eli Israel and it's just like you can really see how much hurt there is in that relationship well and yeah it's both a personal relationship and she brings her these letters from you know Dorothy Parker or whoever and this woman reads them is and is so delighted by them which obviously is an egotistical yeah trip for Lee but also it's like but Dorothy Parker didn't write that right and like no one should be thinking that she did because she didn't so I think I just think one of the really smart things the movie does is like it's a movie that's about these forgeries, but is it really about them? And by not making the movie actually really about them, it manages to, I think, comment on that more intelligently. Well, it's like there's there's like there's always kind of several different kinds of crime movie. Like you get sort of Ocean's Eleven glamorous crime movies or like gritty crime dramas are all about solving a crime, and this one's more about kind of the ecosystem in which the crime exists. And it's not like, oh, is this like morally good or bad and kind of like really delving into that. It's more about like what kind of has pushed her into the position of having to do this and then what's the fallout. And like, it's not like this huge sort of dynamic kind of tragedy play. Yes, which is appropriate because this is a crime that you should not commit, but it's also not murdering someone. Yeah. <laughs> so there was another movie that came out this year called American Animals that if you subscribe to our Patreon account, you will have seen me write a brief post about on the um worst movies of the year list that i did (laughs) this was the worst film i saw last year god that's that's bad it was like absolutely objectively the worst movie i saw just on technical merit like it was incompetent but it was the reason i watched it was that it was about a rare book heist and it was also oh no yeah i do remember this yeah. It was discussed Appalling. in my office and on the listserv and everything, so I felt like I had to watch it. And um, I I finished it because of that and not because of the movie. I would have stopped if if I didn't feel a professional obligation. But the problem with that movie is that it's about these four, I think, uh, college kids who tried to steal uh, Birds of America, which is the huge Audubon book, which is the most valuable book in the world from the special collections library at their sort of small college in Kentucky, I think, along with some other rare books. And they did not manage to get Birds of America out of the library. They got it into like the stairwell. And that was about as far as that went, I think. Oh my God. But they got some other, they managed to get some like illuminated manuscripts and some other things. And then they took them to Christie's and tried to get them valued. The people at Christie's were like, what's going on? They were like, we inherited these from our grandfather like we don't and then didn't manage to sell them and then like they had them in their drawer rooms and the cops caught them and whatever which is an entertaining story and just farcically stupid because what are you doing 
And the movie tells this completely beyond seriously, right? Like, what? It, it, so it's not like a, it's not like no, a Jake? Oh, no. <laughs> they have interviews with the actual people who did this interspersed through the movie, which is weird. I remember that because every critic who watched this was just like, why? Right. And <laughs> stupid because the people who, those people are way more compelling than the actors playing them. They tried to make this a deep commentary on American masculinity and capitalism and society. And I was like, it's literally just some dumb kids who tried to steal some books. Like, that's not... (laughs) And it was just so completely out of proportion to the actual act, right? Like, it just didn't make any sense. And this movie, I think, was sort of the exact opposite of that in that it really understood the gravity of the situation and didn't try to make any sort of like big statement about the world with it. It just tells a story about the people and by not trying to inflate anything, the movie winds up being really good. I think in a way it's reminiscent of films that were made in like a previous era. Like studios used to make a lot of movies that were more of this scope or just like dramas about people. And that doesn't happen so much anymore. Like either you have tiny, tiny indie films, which this technically is, but you'll have these tiny little indie movies that are sort of very artsy, whatever, which I obviously love. Or you have big studio movies, but sort of more middle of the range films that are just like dramas about people don't get made as much. But if they're well done, they're great. And this is exactly that kind of film, which I thought was... It was very refreshing to me. Yeah, I mean, it's just so kind of accessible and just very emotionally intense without being histrionic. Well, yeah, like she's not the sort of character who's going to have big emotions. Yeah, but also like the way it's kind of, they they could have told this story in a way that was just like a bit more over the top than it was. But, you know, Marielle Heller understands that it's like a slightly reserved and funny story about someone who is a reserved person with a morbid sense of humor, whose best friend also has a morbid sense of humor. Yes, it's very funny in addition to being yes. quite serious at times, but I wouldn't call it a comedy, which is also no. a, a line that they balance quite well. And it's everything about it is very accurate. The It's set in New York and it's set in the early 90s in New York. And I was not living in New York at that time, but it all feels very accurate to period. As someone who lives in New York now, it felt very much like a a New York movie in a way that was very satisfying. Yes. I mean, every there's like a million movies come out each year and TV shows that are set in New York, some of which are less filmed in New York than others. Um, and this one, even to me as someone who is not obviously remotely a New Yorker, it feels extremely authentic. They did film in a bunch of real kind of um, old collectible bookstores and they filmed in Julia's, which is like the oldest surviving gay bar in, London, in, uh, in New York, I think. And just kind of the way it's filmed looks very retro without it being like oh here's like a sepia toned nostalgia or like really glaring fashion choices or anything it's just like the lighting they've got this kind of wintry lighting and it's there's a lot of sort of dust motes in the air and it just feels very sort of like you're just hanging out in like the grody 1990s beige apartments (laughs) yes yeah it's it's sort of grimy without being gritty grungy and hip Because these people are not hip. They're not hip at all. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And the rare book stuff, I will say, is highly accurate. 
<laughs> which I mean, normally, not that there are tons of, you know, film and television that deals with rare book collecting, but every once in a while you will have something that will deal with this. And now that I work in one of these stores, I notice it and it's always really funny. Like there's a scene on Billions from the second season, I think, where Paul Giamatti's character like goes into a shop to sell because he's running out of money and he has like a a set of one of like Winston Churchill wrote a big set of history books or something. And he has them signed and it's his like most prized possession. He's going to sell it. And he just walks into this bookstore and like at the back of the bookstore, there's a rare book area. And the guy's like, ah, yes, I will give you this check for these books. And it's like totally the wrong amount of money. And none of this whole interact, like it just is insane, the whole thing. And I was like, this is not like, you just don't just walk into a normal bookstore. And then suddenly at the back, there's like a shelf with what, I mean, you know, all kinds of things get very sort of humorously depicted as with any industry, like nothing is ever accurate in the movies. Like cops like famously love watching cop shows, right? Because they're like ludicrously inaccurate and like doctors also. But this movie, like all of her interactions with when she's selling the letters to people in bookstores felt very, very real to me. They did shoot in a lot of, bookstores that I recognize in New York, including Argosy Books, which is a very famous rare bookstore in Manhattan. And uh, they even filmed at the New York Antiquarian Book Fair, which when they when that scene started, I literally was just like, oh my God, like, no, 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 this is too much for me. Like, it's too close to home. Um, and that's not the kind of stuff that 99% of the audience is going to have any idea of anything. Like if you show a bookstore and it looks sort of dusty, that's enough. Right. But I was very impressed by the commitment to detail because it was very obvious to me that Mariel Heller had done her research. And loves New York. It really felt like they had put the time in to make it feel accurate and authentic. And that even if then you don't know anything about the subject matter, you can always kind of sense that, I think. And I just I just really thought it was great. I mean, it just seems like there was such a promising range of factors came together. Because like obviously a lot of this stuff must have come from the book, which I didn't read. Um so like basically what happened with this movie is um it was in like kind of development hell for years, and the screenplay was initially written by Nicole Hall of Center, and then it was kind of co-written by her and Jeff Whitty and then Marielle Heller came along and kind of took that and then decided to ad- adapt to herself so she changed some stuff and like she she made the Jack Hawk character much more prominent that kind of added to like the queer themes of the movie which we're going to discuss in a minute but like I think it was just like a combination of her being really obsessed with New York and having this kind of source material to work from that clearly there must be a lot of detail in the book kind of about the the career stuff that they could work from. Yes, I'm sure that that's true. Um, I haven't read it either, but I imagine it's quite entertaining. It's very short, so if you find this interesting, I'm sure you can find the book and read it very quickly. Um, We've been kind of dancing around talking about the Jack Hawk character and Richard E. Grant. I think unconsciously this wasn't planned. (laughs) Because we both like fucking are just like, I love Richard E. Grant. (laughs) I know, I was sort of saving it. Um, So so her friend Jack Hawk, who is played by Richard E. Grant, who was not British in real life. Yeah, they, they really don't know much about this person in real life. Like, obviously, the book 
did feature him kind of as the side character in her life. Uh, but this movie is like very much a two-hander and kind of the way he's introduced is at the start of the film, she's by herself. He is not someone who is a longtime friend. He just happens to bump into her in this gay bar and they get talking because like they met at a party at some point and he is just this very charming character who's like very talkative and easy to get on with. But like you can tell there's sort of, there was like a lot of sadness in his life too. And also kind of the anecdotes they're telling about each other and about him are sort of him just being like a complete disaster. So like, you know, he like pissed in a wardrobe at this party or something, but like, he's like 50 or 60. Like he is, he is the probably slightly younger than Richard E. Grant is in real life, which is like in his 60s. So, so it's like, he's living this very kind of chaotic lifestyle. And like, as the film progresses, it becomes quite clear that he's homeless, but he has this like massive wardrobe of scarves that he must be stashing at some bolt hole somewhere. <laughs> and he kind of ends up sort of house sitting for her. And he's just sort of very charming, but unreliable. And this becomes sort of contentious in their relationship because she is reliable and uncharming. And they both kind of hit off each other in a very satisfying way. That's also very moving because they're kind of these two lone figures that just like have never and can never really be part of like average normal society for a variety of reasons, including homophobia and the AIDS crisis, but also their personalities. Yeah. Well, to start off, I just think this performance is astonishing. It's probably my second favorite performance by anyone last year. He is just so outrageously good. I always love Richard E. Grant and everything. I mean, he is like, he is just one of those character actors where whenever you see him, you're like, a delight. <laughs> he yeah, is a and delight. he normally <laughs> plays very small roles. And he's in the next Star Wars, <laughs> which Can't I keep wait. forgetting. And I'm like, his his campaigning for the Oscar has been truly delicious. Oh, oh I'm going to get to we that. Will, we will but... talk about that at the end of the podcast, but... <laughs> but he has a tendency, it's not like he's always playing the same character, but he has a tendency to play these kind of loose, perhaps alcoholic uh unsavory people and he's very very good at it and it's and he's partly because he's his breakout role and still his most famous role is with nail and i and this yes. is sort of almost like a spiritual successor to with nail and i although the character isn't as toxic um although yeah. an interesting fact about richard e grant is that he cannot ingest alcohol um it's not that he's teetotal it's like he literally if he drinks alcohol he will be extremely sick so the only yes. time he's really drunk any alcohol is when he made with Neil and I and the director told him to do it so he'd know what it was like. Which is yes. some great unpleasant filmmaker anecdote. <laughs> right. He was like, I do not believe that this helped. And Bruce Robinson, who made that movie, insists that it did, but I do not believe him. And I was yes, like, I like, think you're probably right. One does what what is called acting. <laughs> right. Also, he his father was a severe alcoholic. He's written... Or he made a mem- sort of memoir film about this. He's very, very open about talking about his childhood. He did a great Fresh Air interview about it that was quite upsetting, actually. Basically says he talks about all this stuff a lot quite explicitly in interviews because people have sort of came up to him and said things about their own childhoods that sort of he him talking about it has helped them. Um, I just find him to be a very interesting figure. And this performance... I found unbelievably moving because he, it is so much fun. Like he is just so much fucking fun in this movie. Like you're, he's so entertaining. He's so charismatic. You completely understand. His body language is amazing. There's this one scene where they go to this kind of cabaret bar together and they have, um, the camera has both of them in shot with 
uh, Melissa in the foreground and Richard in the background. And the camera just shifts focus between the two points. Um, and like whenever it's in focus and you're seeing the close up of Melissa's face in the background, you can see like Richard E. Grant's body language, like this performance that is designed for being out of focus. And I'm like, oh, you're so good. What good <laughs> acting and what good directing and what good cinematography. Well done, everyone. <laughs> yes. Like you can totally understand how he is someone who even this like curmudgeonly lonely kind of angry woman who doesn't like people would wind up being friends with this guy because he's just irresistible. Like how you, how would you not be friends with him? Right. And he is similarly so lonely and it's not like he only winds up friends with her because she's the only person around. Like they have a sort of, they both have this acerbic wit that really feeds off of each other. They obviously really like each other, but he doesn't have anybody else and she is there. And so it kind of is like, well, okay. And the friendship is so idiosyncratic and distinct. Both of them. She is also really great. I just think his performance is really special. They feel like such distinct people. And so that friendship feels so distinct and so moving because they clearly do really care about each other, but they're both so kind of odd and not emotive. Like they yeah. don't talk about their feelings. And they obviously. both have like a very different kind of loneliness because like M- Melissa McCarthy described her performance as like performing this character as like an armadillo or some animal with a shell. And she's very closed off. And like the movie is really explicit about the way that she's sort of alienated people from her life just by like failing to open up and not kind of asking about people's feelings. And like her last girlfriend is just like, just not impressed with her talk. She's like, look, you're just exhausting because like you never open up emotionally and you're really mean and she has a drinking problem and so on. Um, And she's like, it's very hard to tell to what extent she genuinely is like, I'm someone who's better to being living alone. Or if she's just kind of saying that or she's decided that's true because it's the only option she has because she has driven everyone away. Whereas the loneliness you see from Jack Hawk is like he's so sociable and clearly can make a friend in like any situation. But he's also got this very chaotic lifestyle. And like when you when you see their kind of initial meeting, it's framed really like a date in a way that I really enjoyed. Like when they when they kind of first when they have their first kind of parting after spending this evening together, they're sort of lingering on the doorstep and there's this moment where like, you know, Jack Hawk's kind of on the outside of the door and she's on the inside and you're like, Oh, is she gonna like invite him up? But like obviously not in a romantic way, but you can kind of see his desire for her because he wants a friend. And is homeless. And is homeless. <laughs> yeah. the, the key issue here being that he's homeless. <laughs> but like he wants he wants this person. He wants her to be like his person now. Well, it's completely structured as a romance. The narrative is totally set up that way. And it not it but like it's not. Which I think is also part of what makes the movie really work. And the actors clearly in real life get on very well because apparently they've just been like the whole three through award season. They're just like literally hanging out together. Like not like, oh, they have to go to panels together, but it's like they gravitate to each other. So they clearly had like a very good professional relationship on this one. Yeah, it seems like it, it was a case where that actually was genuinely true as opposed to, as you say, the times where they're like, we had such a good time making this film together and you're like you you didn't though it's like it's all right but you're just good at your jobs you know (laughs) right yeah and lots of people had been saying about this movie i think it really is true like it is just such a thoughtful and you know uncommon in movies depiction of like queer friendship 
that you just don't see very often because you don't often see characters like this. I mean, especially like a frumpy middle-aged lesbian. No. Which is like, please, please, could you have some, like several movies each year with a frumpy middle-aged lesbian? I would be overjoyed. (laughs) Yeah, it's really, really great. And the, the sort of counterbalancing factor in his performance to all the sort of charm and hilarity is obviously the fact that he is homeless. He has AIDS, which is never discussed until the end of the movie. But like the reason he doesn't have any friends isn't that he's a curmudgeonly person who's pissed people away. It's that they're all dead, right? Well, something that I thought was just bonkers is that like I said, this movie went through like a lot of rewrites and kind of, you know, there was a long period of it being developed by different people before Mario Heller came along. But she is the one who added the All My Friends Are Deadline. Which just seems like such a key thing to say. And it's like such a perfectly like timed and delivered line that immediately just, if you're not some, if you're not necessarily got it in your mind, like, oh, these are two gay people living in New York in 1991. It's immediately like, unless you're like a teenager who doesn't understand the history you're immediately going to know the context and it just deepens it so much further. And it just, you have such a, like a more complex understanding of their whole situation. It also kind of like illustrates kind of the community of lesbians and gay men that kind of came together as a result of the AIDS crisis kind of as, I mean, obviously that's not what's happening here, but it's sort of like showing a kind of unity that is very important to this time period during the kind of the earlier years of the AIDS crisis so many lesbians came forward as the only people who would take care of men who were dying of AIDS. Yeah. I think the thing about this movie that, that is really makes it kind of brilliant is that it's not about those things that you were just describing, right? Like it's not about yeah, that's like a background tertiary theme. Right. Like it's about this woman and her forging these things and her problems. But I actually think the movie really is about that stuff. Yes. Right? Well, like, the reason why they're both in this position is, like, you can say, yes, the reason why Lee Israel is in this position in her career and her personal life is because she's really unpleasant. But the fact is that, like, you have no idea what background factors have led to the point of her having a drinking problem and alienating everyone. And there's also the fact that, especially in the 90s more than now, but, like, especially at that point, if you are queer then you almost certainly have lost the automatic social circle of people that straight people just take for granted. Like the family circle, there's a really reasonably good chance that you do not, are not really that close to your family or you're completely alienated. Perhaps you have to hide your personal life from a lot of your professional kind of colleagues. I mean, obviously that's still the case today for a lot of people, but there is this kind of the different ways in which families and social circles develop when you're not straight that is the basis for these two characters if you're like an old grandma living in like a village and you're a huge bitch people are still gonna like check in on you to make sure you're okay (laughs) and that's that's not happening if you're like a lesbian in 1991 who doesn't have much money and has alienated all of her friends right and like in general i think there's a huge dearth of media and general discussion about the AIDS crisis, although Ryan Murphy has done some things. I'm not a Ryan Murphy person, but I think one of the positives of his ginormous output is that he has actually made some stuff about that. But it's just something that it doesn't get talked about. A lot of young people are really clueless about this. And 
obviously a lot of it is that most of those people died. It's completely shaped the politics and kind of pop culture of queer culture and the perception within the community because people who are our generation and younger literally just don't understand you don't have kind of the conduit the generational conduit of having knowledge and stuff passed down to you so there's so many people who just like are kind of cluelessly offensive or just like don't understand stuff because there's no like potential for having like a mentoring figure because you've lost a generation no but it's really true and it's obviously one of the great tragedies of that tragedy is that that was lost not completely of course but so much of that generation was wiped out and the part of the effect of that is that then there is a lack of education and knowledge around that and of course the education is also partially that like you know people just don't want to educate teenagers about the AIDS crisis for other reasons I mean you know there's lots of stuff going on around this but I think that this movie does a very good job of just sort of including that without it being the point of the film and as you say like if these people are living in New York in 1991 and they're gay like it's gonna come up like it's it's just there. It yeah. would be insane to not mention it. And so the fact that it's just part of the story and a very important part of the story, you know, for him in particular, again, I feel like it's kind of what the whole thing is about in a way, at least th- for his character, without them making a huge deal of it, for me was very very moving and very smart and not something that I have seen done that much and also like a really kind of deep organic understanding of the whole situation and the specifics of this character who like virtually is fictional he is based on this person who had a relatively minor appearance like he was in the book but they've fleshed this out a lot with the kind of the script and Rich D. Grant's kind of performance but I mean, Marielle Heller's just like, she's figured it out. It's kind of like um like the Florida Project or Tangerine, where you've got someone who's like 35-year-old white guy has like managed to translate something completely out with his sphere of experience into like a fantastic piece of art, which is like what's happened here. Yes, absolutely. I would also recommend, if this is something you're interested in, the similar kind of thing happens in the Alan Hollinghurst novel, The Line of Beauty which is one of the best books that's come out this century, but it's got the same kind of thing of it's not about AIDS, but it's kind of about AIDS. I just think this movie is really brilliant. I'm so glad that it's gotten the awards attention that it has gotten. It got nominated for screenplay and then the two actors and Richard E. Grant on the awards trail has just been, it's been a beautiful thing to watch. It's just so, I mean, like, before, like, long before I watched this movie, because it was out in America, like, four months before here, I've been watching the Richard E. Grant show, just being like, I'm rooting for you so much, even though I've not seen the film, and he did not disappoint. But um, it's like, this is the first time that he's been up for, like, a really big award. Um, and he's simultaneously, like, very transparently enjoying the hell out of it, but is also has quite a lot of humility and a tremendous amount of respect for his director, who has been absolutely shut out of practically everything. And there was, there was even one anecdote from like one of the big awards parties where 
she was physically shut out of the party and he waited outside with her because they would wanted him in because he was a nominated star, but were like, well, she can just queue. And so they waited outside for a while and they just left and went to a more fun party. And he's always like talking her up and stuff. And he and Melissa McCarthy had a really good relationship. But there is this great profile that was written by Cal Buchanan a couple of months ago, which we will link to in the show notes, which is kind of this meta profile, which is about Richard D. Grant on the campaign trail. And it was before he was nominated for an Oscar, but it was sort of like just interviewing him about how much fun he's having just doing this sort of like interview circuit and just being really fun and charming while also being aware that he's like a tenth as famous as Melissa McCarthy. (laughs) Well, part of what's interesting is that in the 90s, he wrote this memoir, the title of which I do not recall, about Hollywood that was famously or infamously, depending on your point of view, bitchy about Hollywood and about specific people. Yeah, I have to read this because apparently he does just dish the dirt. (laughs) Yes. And so that did not help his career at all. And um, I think part of what has made this all a bit surprising is that he, you know, wasn't the most popular guy in town for a while. And I, you know, that was now 20 years ago. So people, I think, just don't care so much anymore. And he's amazing. And sometimes the time has just come. Yeah. And has... He, he just is so excited about everything. His Instagram is sublime. I recommend it highly. Uh, and I saw With Nail and I at Film Forum in New York a couple weeks ago. With Nail and I is famously difficult to get in the United States because of rights issues. Like, oh, you cannot watch it weird. anywhere. It's not on streaming. It's not available. Which weird. is insane. But Film Forum managed to screen it. I had never seen it before. It's, you know, it's incredible. It's just an amazing movie. He is so sublime in it and he was there for a Q&A and it was really interesting because it wasn't like an academy crowd it was like a film nerd film forum crowd but I have genuinely never in my life been in a room <laughs> at one of those sort of screenings with a famous person which I go to quite often and had the audience be so at utterly beside itself to be in the presence of the person who's like visiting, I mean, people were just losing their fucking minds, like just screaming, cheering. The people who were asking him questions were asking these like long, rambling, incoherent, <laughs> just which I mean, that happens often, but it was, I couldn't even get mad, although I was annoyed because they were clearly just like, this movie changed my life. And, blah, 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 blah. and what was kind of interesting about it was that he got quite catty with the person from the movie theater who was doing the questions who was kind of stupid and <laughs> oh my god <laughs> i will say um i mean the, he's probably fine but it's you know anxiety producing to be doing a q a with a famous person whatever but he asked some dumb questions and rishi grant was clearly just like no like i no but to all the people in the audience he was completely like very, very generous and sincere. And even when they asked dumb questions, which happened often, he was totally kind. And I was like, oh, I see. This is like being nice to children and mean <laughs> to their parents, like if their parents are dumb. And it was really enjoyable because like that book that he wrote is again, famously really bitchy. And on social media, he's been so overwhelmingly like sincere and earnest. And at this Q&A, you can tell it's not like he's lost the bitchiness. It's just that it was sort of directed in the right 
way. It's almost like, like he knows when to punch up and when to punch down. Correct. <laughs> correct. I was like, I love it. I love it. But he also was clearly just like so happy that all this was happening. And the guy asked him, he basically talked about how amazing both the with Dale and I and Can You Forgive Me roles are. And then said, he was like, but you know, I wanted to ask, like, do you really care about the Oscar stuff? And he, Richard E. Grant was like, yes. <laughs> he was like, and anyone who tells you otherwise is a fucking liar. Like, everyone cares about this. And like, also, it's like you Oscar. don't accidentally get nominated for an Oscar. Like, come on. <laughs> um, and it was just very funny. It's my number one hope for the Oscars that he wins, which I actually think is very possible because Mahershala Ali has won everything so far but he appears to be like actively not campaigning which for god knows why i mean you understand it's very easy yeah <laughs> he seems to really not want to win which i fully understand yeah. <laughs> and richard e grant is out there like working it and he's so charming that i think we could have a mark rylance situation on our hands which would be a, except just a mark delight. rylance won one for like a rando role Right, but everyone thought that Sylvester Stallone was going to win that year. Oh, he won yeah. everything leading up to that, and was like completely the favorite. And then this like random, to most people, English man won, and everyone was like, "What?" And it was like because he's just a very delightful, very talented Mark Rylance, person. My favorite actor, um, yeah. which is a strange thing to say about someone who the vast majority of his film roles are so bad, I refuse to watch them. Well, this is the thing, right? Like, I think Mark Rylance is great in Bridge of Spies, which is a bad movie. And no one was mad about that, right? Even if you were rooting for the other person, like you couldn't get upset about Mark Rylance winning an Oscar, right? Like you, he's you, good. That, he's good. Right. You can't be like, <laughs> oh, that asshole. Like, you know. And so I kind of suspect that we may be in for a similar thing. At least that is my hope. So fingers crossed. Obviously, even if he doesn't win, he has won in all of our hearts. So good for you. Melissa McCarthy, of course, also fantastic. It's a crazy year for Best Actress. Totally stacked category. I mean, she's, she's not going to win that. She's going to lose to Glenn Close, which is honorable. Fine. Fine. You know, that's great. Good for you. Um, as you can tell, we highly recommend this movie. Definitely catch it for the Oscars. It's just it's just so good. I was like tearing up thinking about it earlier. <laughs> it's, it's really, really wonderful. Thank you, as always, for listening Next week, we will be discussing Russian Doll, which is the hot show on Twitter right now. It is so freaking good. Really good. It's awesome. I have finished it. You can watch it in one long sort of weekend binge watch session. The episodes are half an hour long, which is delightful. I love a half hour episode, I do. (laughs) Yeah, it's four hours long total. I watched it over the course of several nights, but um, it's very quick. Uh, it's starring Natasha Leone as this woman who lives in downtown New York who keeps dying and then returning to the moment. Yeah, it's Groundhog Day with dies. like aging hipsters in really great yeah. costumes. N- Natasha Leone's amazing New York accent. It's fantastic. It's one of the best things I've seen on TV in a long time. All female creative team. Yes, 100%. Truly delightful. I really, really recommend it. It's It's great. Uh, so we will be talking about that next week. We are also about to record, only moments from now, a listener question episode that will be available to Patreon subscribers at the $3 tier or above. So if you would like to listen to us answer questions from 
our wonderful Patreon subscribers, you can subscribe to our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash overinvestedpodcast. We would also love it if you could leave us a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or whatever podcast service you use. It really helps us with visibility. Or just recommend us on social media to all of your peers and friends. Yes, really just any way you can help us get out there. It really, really does help. We appreciate it so much. And uh, where can our listeners find you on the internet, Gabia? Well, I am a writer at The Daily Dot, so you can find me there where I've got lots of film reviews and things like Star Trek Discovery recaps. And on Twitter, I am hello underscore Taylor. And I am also on Twitter at ML Davies. You can find the podcast on Twitter at overinvestedpod. We are on Tumblr at overinvestedpodcast. And all of our episodes are on our website at overinvestedpodcast.com. Thanks again, and we will be back next week. Bye.